0: Hello and welcome to Sense of Responsibility. I'm Alec Lindenauer, a certified financial planning professional, husband and chief allowance officer to two daughters. I'm also the creator of the Sense of Responsibility tools and how-to instruction parents need to raise their children into financially literate, money-savvy adults, even if they don't know much about finance themselves. I'm Julie Franz, a chef, entrepreneur at heart, wife and mother of two middle school children. I also curate the Sense of Responsibility community, so parents have a forum to ask questions, share success stories, and discuss their journeys. As a financial newbie myself, I'm also cultivating our group support system to help carve out my own family's path toward financial literacy. Hey, Money Teaching Parents and Caregivers, Alec here, and I am looking forward to introducing you to a special guest today, Dr. Ashley LeBaron-Black. She received her PhD in family studies and human development from the university of Arizona and is now a professor of family life at Brigham Young university, BYU. She's the chair of the family financial wellbeing focus group for the national council on family relations, and is an associate editor for the journal of family economic issues. I love this part. Her research focus is family finance, including two key areas. First, how financial attitudes and behaviors predict relationship outcomes. And second, which is right in our wheelhouse, how introducing finance during childhood and adolescence predicts financial, relational, and mental health outcomes in emerging adulthood. I love that last part, like I said. Basically, she's a professor whose research passion is learning about the effects of parents teaching their kids about money. Oh, I'm seriously gonna nerd out here with Dr. LeBaron Black. In May, 2022, Ashley and her team released a study which found that the most effective money teaching techniques to use are those which provide children tangible experience. And interestingly, lecturing your children is the least effective method. Of course, if some of this sounds familiar to you, it might be from the recent Sense of Responsibility blog where I wrote, that post was called Following the Science to Teach Our Kids About Money. I'll put a link to that post in the show notes. All right, I'm really looking forward to getting into this study, so you, our core parent or caretaker, can dig into how to most effectively teach your child about money. Let's do it. Dr. Ashley LeBaron-Black, welcome.
1: Thank you, Alec, great to be here with you.
0: And like I told you, as we were having our little uh, pre-recording chat, I am very excited to nerd out with you. And again, thank you for allowing me to call you Ashley versus Dr. LeBaron Black, because I know that that's easier <laughs> on the tongue. I know being, <laughs> being, having the last name Lindenauer when someone says, you know, oh, Mr. Lindenauer, please, please. No, 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 Alec. Alec, Alec Alex, much better. Yes,
1: so definitely. That, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right.
0: So, Ashley, I, first, I want to tell you why I love this study so much, and I'm going to read This email that I sent to my team to Julie, my partner, and Trina, our marketing maven. So this is from September 26, 2022. And the title is Jiminy Christmas with three (laughs) exclamation points. And it says, this is exactly, in all caps, what I'm trying to shout into the wind. The headline of this article is Just Makes Sense. And that's C-E-N-T-S, just like sense of responsibility. So already in love there. And it says, (laughs) BYU study shows children need hands-on experience to learn financial responsibility. Yes, this is exactly the core of core sense of responsibility. It's not about allowance per se. It's about ownership of money. That's the key, whether they work for it, they're given it, whatever. And then I say, this researcher might be a must-have podcast guest. And we need to use this and refer to this article and study. I'm gonna nerd out on the study.
1: <laughs> That's awesome. I love that
0: <laughs> so i I wrote that in September, and really this the whole thing it just it resonates with our resources and our philosophy, so whether it's you know the parents the blog or podcast, the newsletter, the courses that we offer, if I had to boil down our philosophy into just a couple of key points, I would say like, don't tell me. What to do? Like, tell me exactly how to do something, right? That's Mm -hmm. one. You don't have to be Warren Buffett. You don't have to be an expert for this, because all we really need to do is just provide an experience for our children. And the best way to do that is whatever way you can make it work in your house, right?
1: Like, Mm -hmm.
0: this is not complicated stuff. Yeah. And and my why is my two daughters, and all of the experience that I've seen as a professional with with financial illiteracy. So. Let's start with your why, Ashley. Like, why did you do this? Why are you doing this? And and tell us about that.
1: I, as an undergrad, and then in a master's and a PhD program, I studied family studies and human development. And when I first uh, started getting into research as a student, I, you know, was trying to figure it out. And my mentor, uh, whose whose name is Dr. Jeff Hill. He was studying family finance and asked if I would be his research assistant. And my initial reaction to that was, "Ooh, like money? Does it seem that like exciting or interesting?" And so I was like, "Oh, but I like really want to work with him. He's great. So I'll just work with him on this until I figure out what I like actually want to research, what I'm actually going to be passionate about." And the more I got into uh, this family finance research the more and more apparent it was to me how money impacts families and individuals and relationships so much that, you know, cause the thing that really drives me is, is relationships. I, I love families. I think they're so great. And, you know, I just try to do the little bit I can to help, you know, people know what they can do to have stronger, healthier family relationships I kind of f- started falling in love with looking at the financial aspect of that and how much money impacts couples, how much money impacts the well-being and all sorts of areas of life for emerging adults. And anyway, I just, I just became very apparent how important it is. And so then I became really passionate about
0: it. What do you want to do with all of this? I mean, so we'll get to the study. Um, I, obviously, mm-hmm. I want to really get into some of those weeds, but What's the goal with a study like this and some of the other ones that you've done?
1: Yeah, kind of, I guess my end goal ideally would be for parents to understand how important it is to teach their kids about money well and to know how they can do that. So, as a researcher, you know, I I get to provide evidence of, of some of these, you know, concepts and ideas. And then I, you know, can help spread the word a little bit, like, coming onto podcasts like this and ultimately just hope it, it gets out there enough into kind of the everyday language that people talk about and an important aspect of, of parenting that that parents think about. So, so yeah, that's, that's kind of my role I see is, is just providing some evidence that people can say, yes, like see this study found that this really matters yeah. and it mattered for kids like later in life too.
0: Excellent. And what was little Ashley like with money growing up? What was money like in her house?
1: Oh, good question. <laughs> um, my parents did a pretty good job teaching me about money. Um, several kind of lessons or moments come to mind. They did a good job of helping us be generous and more giving, less self uh, selfish with our money. I remember, uh, you know, we would donate 10% of our money growing up to our church, and we understood that that was used to help our, you know, our neighbors who who needed it. Or, you know, we'd take surprise Christmas presents over and drop them off on someone's doorstep when we knew, you know, a, a neighbor was going through a hard time. Or, uh, you know, so so my parents kind of helped involve me in ways, even with my own money, to kind of get me in the habit of thinking about my money as something I could use to help other people. So that was great. Yeah. I also remember one time, I don't know if it was because my siblings and I were acting entitled or just asking for too many things, (laughs) Um, but they sat us down once and got out the Monopoly money and they like literally counted out with Monopoly bills, you know, a, a stack of money and said, this is how much we make every month. And at first I was about 10 years old. And at first I was like, whoa, that's, you know, that's so much money. But then with that stack, they counted out a big portion of it and said, this is how much it costs to just pay for our house that we live in. And they like counted out more of it in a separate pile. Like this is how much it costs to have running water and our fireplace, you know, like the utilities. They counted out how much our car costs. They counted out how much they paid on groceries. You know, they did like, they went through all the needs and then it, they had like a little stack left and... Uh, they said, you know, this is how much we have left over after we pay for all those things that we need to survive. And we're really lucky because we do have a little bit left over and some people don't. So we do get to, you know, do some fun things and get some things that we want, but it's not limitless. Like this is how much it is. So this is why we say no to things. And that was just a huge eye opener for me as a kid of how much life costs, just all the different expenses involved with living and you know having a family and and just you know yeah not being entitled to to endless money so you know just just moments like that that were good good teaching moments for me they they helped us set up our own bank accounts for us at one point and you know so so of course they weren't perfect but but they definitely taught me some things that were helpful later it's a good good starting point
0: How old were you when you did that monopoly exercise
1: I think around 10 years old. I'm not sure exactly, but old enough to to understand. (laughs) Yeah.
0: It's amazing what we remember as kids, right? I'm sure your parents were like, hmm, let's just use the Monopoly set. It wasn't this grand plan and they just sat down and now here you are however many years later talking about it, right? It's just yeah. amazing. And, and what a great reminder for people, as they say, you know, you don't have to be Warren Buffett, like, just like you don't have to be Lance Armstrong teacher kid to ride a bike. I mean, you don't have to be the monopoly guy to sit down and, and have that, that yeah. interchange. You just kind of have to want to do it. That's yeah, pretty much exactly. it. You said that when your mentor approached you, you thought, eh, money, that's boring. Mm-hmm. I'm curious why you chose that adjective.
1: I think I just had this connotation like in in family science, you know, I was all about like relationships and more like not that it's all like fluffy lovey-dovey stuff, but maybe I would have guessed that I would have I would have gotten into research more like you know, marital interactions, and you know, how like time use, you know, or, or maybe like attachment, you know, so, some things like that, that felt like they were going to be more obviously relationship centered. Mm-hmm. Um, and money just seemed like this, this thing that I wasn't interested in, like, I'm not a huge, well, I end up doing a lot of statistics now and took like, you know, 11 college statistics classes, but I didn't like at the time think that math was, you know, something that was interesting to me. I was kind of a black sheep in my family by not doing business. Mm. You know, I was, I was very adamant that I was going to do something that I was passionate about and that I wanted my job to be something that was meaningful to me. And anyway, so I, so I just think I had this this stereotype about money as, as being something boring. <laughs> yeah.
0: Interesting. All right. So let's dig into the study. And you're not kidding with statistics. I mean, I dug into this and I was like, wow, there's a, I mean, like, I'm not going to say I'm the smartest guy, but I'm also not the dumbest guy. And there's a lot of stuff in here. I'm like, wait, what does that mean? So (laughs) tell us about the study, but Ashley, treat me like I'm fourth, fifth grade, anywhere in their work. So tell me about the study.
1: Awesome. Okay. So uh, we had found in some previous research we'd done that there's kind of three main ways that kids learn about money from their parents. There's what we call parent financial modeling, which is just the the example that parents set for their kids. And this like isn't necessarily intentional, right? Like all parents are setting an example for their kids about money management, whether they're trying to be a good example or not. With the idea that that kids are always watching. You know, they grow up you know, with around these parents, and that you're attitudes and behaviors kind of just rub off on them kind of the go-to for what kids are going to do later when they're managing their own money is whatever they've seen modeled so that's like one method so so that's not
0: necessarily like oh you're so good at balancing your checkbook or you're you're budgeting or you're living within your means it's as simple as oh yeah that's expensive it's just these little comments that you're talking about that all add up right
1: Yeah, all of the above. Yes, little comments that like the one you just said would, would teach kids, you know, even maybe accidentally like, oh, my parents don't always spend money on things they want. They like sometimes restrain themselves. Yeah. Or it could be knowing that your parents have a budget watching them budget, you know, anything where it's kids just watching what their parents are doing with their money. And then the second one is parent child financial discussion. So actually, like, talking to kids about money. And this is kind of the first thing most people think of when, when they, right. you know, when we tell them, teach your kids about money, you know, is, and but down, this can look, yeah, yeah, exactly. But <laughs> it can look like a lot of different things. It can be like, sit down discussions, like we're going to talk about credit cards, you know, sit down. Or it could mm-hmm. be, you know, you're at the grocery store and you're like, Hey, let me teach you about like price per ounce, like, or, you know, just any kind of dialogue between parents and kids about money. And then the third method that is kind of new to research that I got to kind of be involved as this was coming out as something for researchers to be paying attention to, which is really exciting. It's experiential learning. So
0: this was our exciting part too.
1: Yeah, I know. I like I it's my favorite of the three methods and I'm nerdy enough to have a favorite of the three methods, right? But Me but yeah, giving kids hands-on experience practicing with their own money, that you know, that it's not enough to see other people doing things or to be told how to do things, but that we actually to be able to internalize attitudes and behaviors and knowledge, have to actually do it ourselves over and over again until it sinks in. So those were the three methods and no study had yet looked at those three methods as three distinct different approaches and looked at outcomes from those three. People had usually just kind of talked about it generally. So, so uh, so so meaning all the previous
0: studies said, Hey, if you teach your kids about money, this is what happens, but nothing about the How?
1: Yes, exactly. Okay. Um, Or at least not as, not as, Detailed and nuanced about the how, yeah, okay. um, without getting too in the weeds. But, but okay. yes, so then we, with those three as like predictors, so we we asked emerging adults, um, it was over 4,000 emerging adults throughout the US, so 18 to 30 year olds. You know, we asked them how, you know, about how their parents taught them about money growing up, asked them questions that got it, all three of those different methods. And then we measured their financial outcomes in, in one study. We've looked at financial distress, financial independence, and financial satisfaction. And then it's kind of like intermediary variables. We also looked at financial behaviors and financial self-efficacy. So basically saying like, we know that, that it really matters that parents teach kids about money, but does it matter how they teach them about money? And what we found was that, first of all, with kind of separating the three methods, the discussion method wasn't significantly related to anything when we were accounting for the other two, which is not to say that parents shouldn't talk to their kids about money. Of course they should, but it seems like that's that's maybe just like a stepping stone to like the more important ways about teaching kids about money, and it can't stop it just telling them what to do. So that was a really exciting finding because again, previously, like the thing that researchers were talking about most was that. telling kids. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then which the, is also what
0: they do in school.
1: Right. Yeah. That's kind yeah. of like the go-to approach, um, and apparently, yeah. it's not the most important according to this study. Yeah. So then the modeling uh, method was predictive of emerging adults own financial behaviors. And then through that was related to all the the other outcomes related to financial well being. So basically, we found that emerging adults whose parents were good at managing their money, these emerging adults also tend to be good at, at managing their own money. And so they're, they're doing well financially.
0: I assume that and wasn't then, too much of a surprise on that part.
1: No, but but it was good to know, you know, like, yeah, 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 <laughs> um, but, but yes, like totally logically makes sense. Right. And then the experiential learning part, that method was predictive of emerging adults, financial self-efficacy. So basically, well,
0: yeah, what is that exactly?
1: Yeah, good question. Financial self-efficacy is like how confident they are at their ability to manage money well. So not their actual behaviors, but just how confident are you that you can do this? And so emerging adults who growing up had been given opportunities to practice managing their money were confident that they could. They're like, yeah, I am I got finances. And financial self-efficacy then was really predictive of all the well-being outcomes. And so those emerging adults were doing well too. So basically... Uh, modeling and experiential learning both really matter for different reasons. One of them really shows Mm. them what behaviors to do, and the other one kind of gives them the confidence to do it well.
0: That's so interesting. So wait, so why is that confidence so important? I mean, look, if I'm confident uh, that I can go you know, on the balance beam and then I just really can't, I fall and I break my leg, that's not so good. So there must be a reason that this confidence is so important and different from walking on the balance beam.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think you're right that that they are different, and I think they both matter. Like financial behaviors themselves matter, um, but financial self-efficacy seems to also matter too. But and I think they kind of the ideal would be for to have both of them that you you Mm -hmm. know you know what you should be doing you you know you're doing the right things you're kind of checking the boxes like yes I budget yes I'm saving yes I'm avoiding debt, but people who feel confident that they can manage money well tend to well first of all those things are correlated so they tend to actually then do the behavior there's a reason they feel good about it right so that's good you know uh, we don't want them to be confident if they don't actually know you know what they're doing or if they're making dumb choices um but self-efficacy is important for for taking some of those financial risks, and I don't want to say risks with like a negative connotation, but yeah. but yeah, like putting money in this in the stock market, even if you cognitively understand how to do that, if you don't think that you're a person who is capable of of mm-hmm. doing that, then you won't actually pull the trigger. So the outcomes we we're looking at, again, were financial distress, financial satisfaction, just those like, mental outcomes about finances so you know we weren't measuring like how like what's your net worth or what's your credit score but but how do you feel about how you're doing financially okay. and people who are confident that they can do it well are feeling pretty good about how they're doing and the other one we looked at was financial independence so which makes sense too that you know if if emerging adults are like no i have no idea what i'm doing financially i can't do this i'm dumb. you know i'm not capable then they're going to Stay in their parents' basement. You know they're going to kind of stay right, right, close right. to home and not be willing to go out and actually make take financial risks or be confident in just going out there and and kind of getting into life.
0: Right, because in a way, I mean, everything is a risk, right? You right. Walk outside, yeah. you're taking a risk, and anything new feels potentially even riskier. Exactly. You mentioned you work with four thousand families, so I don't know much about these. Studies, you know, obviously I'm not in academia, so is that a lot? Is that a little? Is that medium?
1: Yes, good question. It depends on the field. For for family studies and human development, that's like a it's a real good sample. Okay. If I was like a, a sociologist or demographer, that would not be like especially impressive. They're they're used to dealing with like big data, it, mm-hmm. but yeah, it was it was a very good sample for for this. Yeah.
0: Okay. I mean, how do you find these people who who were who are we talking about?
1: So that was, uh, yeah, not all samples are created equal, obviously, like the the number of right. people in your sample matters, but how you went about sampling you know, really matters in terms of who these findings are actually generalizable to, like how, um, yeah. is, you know, do you have a, a representative sample of the group, the population that you're trying to talk about? So yeah, we use Qualtrics panel because they have... I mean, that's their job. You know, they have access to emerging adults all over the U.S. They have these, you know, uh, research marketing panels that they have. Our sample of 4,000 is not quite nationally representative of U.S. emerging adults um, because we intentionally oversampled some minority groups in terms of race and socioeconomic status so that we could ask more specific questions about those groups. Anyway, but it's a pretty, it's like a diverse good representation of 18 to 30 year olds throughout the U.S.
0: One of the terms you use a lot in the study is financial socialization. That's something that I hadn't heard despite doing this and helping parents for quite some time. So can you tell us a little bit about what that is and why it's so important?
1: Yes, good question. It's just a fancier way of saying how kids learn financial knowledge, attitudes, and behaviors. And we're talking about parent financial socialization. We're talking about how they learn those from parents and socialization, like more broadly, not necessarily specific to finance, but socializations, this, you know, this concept that we, you know, when we're born, we don't come with all like the knowledge, attitudes, and behaviors. Those are learned throughout, well, throughout life, but of course childhood and adolescence are really important for, socialization of all kinds of things that then predict how we behave and, and you know, how well we're doing later in life. So financial socialization just means, yeah, how, how and what are kids learning about money?
0: What was very surprising to you about the study?
1: Probably most surprising was that the discussion method was literally not associated with anything once we were accounting for the other two methods and again you know maybe some of that is because you know there's probably discussion involved in the other two so so I guess it it was just surprising Mm -hmm. that that in and of itself is not enough but when discussion is used as like a tool to model and to to you know help facilitate kids own experiences then it's beneficial. We thought that all three of them would be related to the outcomes. So.
0: Yeah. I mean, look, I I'm with you. I thought that as I read through, I thought I guess I always knew that that wasn't as effective, but certainly the level of which you're saying that it is not as effective is shocking.
1: You know, based on other parenting research I see too on topics not at all related to money I think we're kind of just learning this generally in in terms of parenting best practices that, you know, of of course kids, you know, don't, it's not, it's not enough to just tell kids what to do. Like for example, I have um, a colleague who studies religiosity in families and parents who just talk to kids about, about, you know, religion and, you know, try to just tell them what know, religious uh values they want them to have that's not effective what works with passing on the values and, and knowledge we want to instill in our kids is actually Just buying christmas them... gifts
0: and delivering them with your family to other yes. families that don't have stuff
1: yes like exactly young did. <laughs> yes exactly so getting them involved like you know people don't care about things unless they have some skin in the game you know we have to help them understand how, you know, why they should care and how this affects them. Otherwise, it just feels like we're being preached to, you know, even if that preaching's about money and how to handle it.
0: So when you asked these 4,000 families or 4,000 young adults about their experience that their parents provided, were you able to dig into what types of experiences they had?
1: Mm. In this study, we asked them, it was actually twenty. We asked them twenty different questions, like on a scale of one to seven, like how well did your parents this? And we asked them twenty different things about financial mm-hmm. socialization, and but those uh, those scales that we used to measure that were created based off of previous research we've done that was qualitative research. So we did interviews of I think one hundred and fifty three emerging adults, parents, and grandparents mm-hmm. about where we asked more open-ended questions, asking them to just tell us how how and what their their parents taught them about money. And then based on that, we kind of knew what type of survey questions to create.
0: Got it. Yeah. So will we be learning from you and your group some of the different experiences to provide?
1: Yes um and those we have different papers actually published about that too if you if you want to read them but um kind of the main I've got, I've
0: got two more right in front of me. I've got two nice, more. Nice. Right yes. That's great. <laughs> yeah, let's talk about that. Let's have it. So what else is coming from this all of this data?
1: Well, so from the qualitative from those interviews we did, we wrote um yeah, several papers from that that kind of got in depth about where we're kind of sharing the in participants own words some of these real experiences that they had had and, and some of the papers we wrote about that, like one, we wrote one paper each for the three methods of like, here's how modeling has looked for some people. Here's stories about, you know, from the people shared about discussion with their, with their parents. Here are examples of experiential learning. So we have qualitative data about that in those papers. And then as far as like the what that parents taught, you know, getting, going from how to what, kind of the, the four main categories that people's experiences were kind of grouped under were financial planning, really, like kind of having a financial vision, goal setting, that kind of stuff, understanding time value of money, those things. And then financial management, classic, like budgeting, saving, avoiding debt, working hard for money, kind of this, the link between working and money, you know, that money doesn't grow on trees, you have to like, do something for it for most of us. Um, and then yeah. the fourth was this, yeah, the idea of financial giving, and and that was ended up being one of the big things that people talked about learning from their parents was, you know, kind of the more uh, moral financial attitudes that they had learned. And and so yeah, we have a paper that shares stories about about those.
0: One of these that I have in my hand. It says from piggy banks to significant others, associations between financial socialization and romantic relationship flourishing in emerging adulthood. So, meaning, if you teach your child about money, there's more potential for them to have healthy relationships with their partner.
1: Yes. So, yeah, this was with the it was with the same data of four thousand, you know, U.S. emerging adults, and we used those same predictors of how their parents had taught them about money you had said that the other kind of half of my research deals with couples and how couples handle money, you know, obviously finances are really important for couple relationships. And, and so, you know, we wondered, we're like, well, you know, is there kind of then this link from how they learned about money from their parents when they were growing up and then how successful their relationships are, their romantic relationships in emerging adulthood, So yeah, that's what we were studying in in that paper. And we did find those links that emerging adults whose parents had taught them about money well, while they were growing up, that they had more successful romantic relationships currently as emerging adults.
0: Wild. (laughs) Yeah. This is amazing. Uh, Actually, this weekend I was with a parent who was on the podcast in an earlier episode and they went through our elementary starter course, which is all about how do you sit down, talk about allowance? How do you do that? What does it look like at, at the table? That one hour per month, make it a monthly thing so you can stick to it. And then the second module of that is okay, well, what do you do the other 29, 30 days of the month? How do you mm-hmm. what's the socialization like? How do you talk about that? What happens when you're when you're out to dinner? You know, how do you integrate all of that into conversation? And mm-hmm. interestingly, what she told me, as I've heard from other parents who have done it or teaching their kids about money, they've said that now that they're doing it monthly with their child, their relationship with money is changing and their relationship with their spouse in regards to money is changing all because they're giving their eight year old, you
1: know,
0: $40 a month.
1: Love it. That's so cool. And again, like the, this connotation that I used to have of like money is this boring thing that, you know, is incorrect. And money actually like is so... Related to some of the things that are most important to people in life. Not only do do the most important things in life cost money, you know, but but money is you know symbolic of of deeper things, like how couples manage their money together says a lot about their relationship dynamics and, and, uh, you know, how much respect and trust, uh, you know, intimacy they have with each other. And, you know, just how we spend our money says a lot about our values. And anyway, so so that's, that's why money is so fascinating is because at the end of the day, money's not the most important thing in life. But how we manage our money, you know, what we do with it, impacts a lot of things and is reflective of much deeper things, I think.
0: Agreed. So I was listening to a podcast the other day, and this is what they said. They they were citing a survey, a thousand kids, and what they found was the number one topic that kids wanted to avoid more than sex or death was money. And they wow. said that it's it's because it's a source of in-home stress during regular conversation. Mm-hmm. And when they said stress, it was the, the simple commentary like we were talking about earlier where, oh, we can't afford that or go ahead and check the price. So mm-hmm. I was curious, just your thoughts on that very brief introduction to what it was I was listening to.
1: Yeah, that's so interesting. Yeah, from some of the research we've done, like thinking back to those interviews, it seemed that overall like... The more open parents were about talking about money with their kids, the less financial stress kids seem to feel. And of course that needs to be done well, but kind of, I'm thinking of like a few worries that parents have when we, you know, when we tell them like, be open with your kids about money, tell them about your financial situation, like talk about money. Um, One thing parents are worried about is that they will, like their financial challenges will stress out their kids. But what we found from the interviews was that kids are picking up on all of that anyway, and it actually makes it worse by not just talking about it. I think it can go a long way for parents to say, "Okay, here's our situation. Like, times are a little tight, but we're the parents. Like, you don't have to worry about this. Like, we've got this as a family. Like, here's what we can do: get a cheaper car. You know, like we're we're probably gonna have to say no to some things. You know, and so just helping kids. Those are really important learning just lessons them for important. kids. And yeah, and keeping them informed can, I think, kind of de- de-stress them a little because, and that just, you know, that's with anything in life. It's like when things aren't talked about, but like we're all feeling it, like that just makes it worse. It's just so much better to just, to just talk about things, get them in the open. And because then kids can understand how, like that it is going to be okay. Because right now they're feeling the stress, but they don't know that it's all going to work out, right. you know? So that's one thing parent, you know, parents are worried about. I think parents are also worried about their kids sharing financial information with other people, which, you know, a a few things with that is, first of all, maybe tell kids certain information when they're of appropriate age and maturity, ask them not to share it with other people and why that would be something that we don't want to do. But then honestly, worst case scenario is really, it's really not that bad. And would you rather run the risk of your kid accidentally saying something embarrassing in front of somebody or would you but if you don't then you risk them not being prepared for financial adulthood the rewards outweigh the risks and you know to just be smart about it what's the other I'm trying to think of the other main thing that that parents usually say oh the other the thing is that parents are like oh i i shouldn't be the one who teaches my kids about money because i don't know enough about money i'm not that good with money they'll right, they'll just learn it later answers
0: that Right, that's the it, perfect example. Your parents didn't need yes. to know anything about money to put Monopoly money in your hands.
1: Exactly. Yeah, like you don't have to be perfect at finances yourself to teach your kids really important things. And yes, financial literacy classes in high school or college or whatever like can be really helpful. You know, taking them to the next step. But what you know, we found in in studies is that kids learn more about money from their parents than they do from school, work experience, peers, and media combined. You just can't replace- Wait, wait, wait.
0: Say that again? Yeah. And a little bit louder maybe and slower and (laughs) shout that one again.
1: Okay. From the rooftops, kids (laughs) learn more about money from their parents than they do from school- work experience, peers and media combined.
0: Combined.
1: Combined. It's crazy. <laughs> like parenting matters so much and like I, you know, I know this as a family studies person, like you know, parenting matters so much, but like even with money, it it's you just can't replace the daily influence over 18 years of parents. And so, so that's, you know, it's just so important for parents to just be a little intentional about it, put in a little effort, try to do a good job and it'll, it'll, you know, benefit your kids so much in multiple areas of life as you know, we've
0: talked about. I need to get you a megaphone, the biggest <laughs> megaphone ever. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. Wow. So that is amazing. Okay. So here's the next one that I'm holding. Like I said before, you're going to have to talk to me like I'm in, you know, fourth or fifth grade, especially for this one. So. Finances and fate, parent financial socialization, locus of control, and mental health in emerging adulthood. What's that yeah. all about? Translate so it's, that one.
1: It's just yet another reason for parents to try their best to, to teach their kids about money well. So so this one we were looking at, so the same, the same methods of teaching kids about money as the predictors. And we were seeing whether that impacted the mental health of emerging adults. So we asked these emerging adults about uh, like depressive symptoms, anxiety symptoms, and life satisfaction, trying to get it, you know, the overall mental health. And then there's this thing in social science called locus of control. And that just means whether you view your life as basically in your control primarily or totally out of your own control that like you're so that's where like the title came in finances mm. and fate you know is your life up to fate and like you have no control over what happens to you or like are you you know what's that great quote you know i'm the captain of my fate or you know whatever that great you know that my destinies Primarily in my own hands, despite you know life throwing curveballs, and so we asked emerging adults questions that that could help us measure that too, how internal versus external their locus of control was, and so the our main findings were that emerging adults whose parents uh, taught them about money well tended to have a more internal locus of control. They thought that their life was in their own hands, and. People with higher internal locus of control tend to have better mental health, which makes sense, right? Like if you think that your life is out of your control, like that's not going to feel good. like that's a classic thing associated with depression and anxiety is, is feeling out of control um, mm. and like that you can't actually do anything about your situation. Again, another reason to teach kids about money well is that kids who have learned you know about money well can manage it well, feel confident about managing it well, are going to feel like they have control of their lives and that's going to be good for their mental health.
0: But I just can't stress enough. And it sounds like you're stressing the same thing when you say teach them well, that really just means provide experiential opportunities and good modeling. Again, doesn't necessarily mean that you have to be great at it.
1: Yes, exactly. Just just try your best to be a good example for your kids. Just give them some hands-on experiences with money. Like, yeah, you do not have to be perfect for it to to be, you know, well. Yeah.
0: What about across different income socioeconomic statuses that you said earlier? Mm-hmm. Um, look, we a lot of our... Core parents, there's some who, you know, a trip to Starbucks is a complete luxury or might not ever happen. Mm-hmm. And then there's some who, you know, they're grabbing their latte every day. That's a wide disparity, as I'm sure mm-hmm. we're the 4,000 people. So, what does that look like? What do those experiences look like? And how are they different, yet mm-hmm. potentially just as effective for people?
1: I love that question because I think sometimes a, an incorrect assumption that people have is that if they're wealthy, this will automatically happen. And if they're low income, that this is impossible. And that really couldn't be further from the truth. I think often low income families by necessity end up teaching their kids these things really well because they mm. have to, like the kids will learn about budgeting because there's no other option. Yeah, like low-income right. families are often the best budgeters because they have to be. Yes, I think some of the hands-on experiences with money, like having an allowance, might be more possible for more wealthy families or whatever. So there are, you know, some things that might be challenges for some, that different challenges for others. But but we really did see like across socioeconomic status, across like different family, you know, income situations that it's it's possible for anybody to do these things well it just might look a little different but but yeah you can have good financial behaviors whether you're barely getting by whether you're doing really well you can have conversations with your kids about money in either situation you can involve your kids in some of their own financial decisions and practice regardless and actually you know some low income families they're their kids as teenagers end up being really involved financially because they have to like help
0: contribute, they have to start yeah. helping
1: to yeah contribute and help support the family right. so so unfortunately in in some instances it's almost like you know they they almost get too much responsibility than right. than we wish they had to have but but they end up learning a lot of great lessons about money so yeah I, I just want to like empower families like of all situations that this you can do this no matter what your situation
0: is I have a friend who, has three children Mm -hmm. and each time a child turns 13, they sit down with them and they like an open book, they go through every account, every statement Mm -hmm. that they have, their family budget, their credit card statements, everything. Wow. For me, that was a little bit of oversharing. I wasn't quite comfortable with that. If my child, one of my daughters, if they say, you know, how much do you make? You know, I I give them an answer in context. But then if they if they are trying to drill down in a particular thing where it's just too uncomfortable, I say, You don't need to know that now, but when the time comes in the future and it's appropriate, then I'll tell you that. But you can ask me other things.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Any thoughts on either of those approaches?
1: I think kind of what you said earlier in the podcast of just like whatever works for your family. I think an important principle is being open enough that kids get like a sense of what a certain job would make, what kind of income would result in a certain kind of lifestyle or how much do different things in life cost. Like just being aware of things, I think requires some level of openness, but but no, I don't think that kids would need to see your full statements to get that information and they might right, right. as a kid I would feel pretty burnt out from that, I think. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
0: right at 13 for sure. Yeah. <laughs> you mentioned when we were talking before we hit the record button that you provide some experiences for your nieces and nephews or nieces and nephews or niece and nephew. It wasn't sure all, right. of
1: nephews, all of the above yep. okay, <laughs> nieces and nephews.
0: So tell us some specifics, what works well for you that you've seen hands-on with your family. They said, Oh yeah, this is a good one.
1: Well, I'll kind of, I guess, brag about my, my sister a little instead of myself. Cause she, um, but I away. saw her do this with her kids and I thought it was so great. So I have a nephew named Johnny. His mom's my sister. And she, from the time he was little, like maybe two, she had he well, yeah, she had given him a elevated piggy bank, meaning that it was like a piggy bank-like thing that had three different slots, and he couldn't even read at that point. And so they were like three different colors. And so even as like a, a little toddler, he knew that I'm, you know, I'm just making this up, but that like green meant saving. There was like a save slot that blue meant spend. There was a spend slot. And then that red, have I said that yet? That red is, um, means give, a give slot. And so, you know, when he would get little money from doing an extra little chore or for his birthday from his grandparents, you know, whatever, whenever he'd get a little bit of money, he knew and started doing this as like a little toddler that yes, that he had to put some of that money in each slot. So just from that one thing that she decided to implement with him, he is learning like budgeting that like money goes into different categories. He's learning saving to like that. Some of that money he just doesn't see for a long time. He's learning spending in the sense of saving up for something he wants. And when it got like, enough money in the spend slot he got to go to the store and pick out whatever he wants you know that was exciting for him and you know if he wanted something at the store he's like hey mom can I have this she would be like well how much do you have in your in your spend jar right now you know and so just you know recognizing oh I need to have like a certain amount of money to buy things and then he's learning generosity too like you know that some of the money you give away to help other people so I thought that was so great and then you know because he was learning this in early childhood at about how old age- is Johnny now he's now seven and when he was five or six maybe he was got super into legos and really wanted this big batman lego set and my sister's like well how much do you have in your spend jar and he did not have nearly enough and she said well what should we do about it like how should we get more money so that you can afford it and he his idea was to, because they have a dog and she would sometimes pay him to go around the yard picking up the dog poop. And so he said, well, can I pick up more dog poop? <laughs> and so <laughs> she helped him. They made like flyers that were, he, um, they had like a picture of him and his cute little sunglasses and it said the doo-doo dude. And he like <laughs> put them around the neighborhood that, that people could call him to come up and clean up their dog poop for like a couple bucks. Oh my God,
0: what a and crappy he, job. Yeah, literally.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's great. <laughs> I love that. Um, yeah, so he did that. And, um, you know, and some neighbors wanted him to. And his grandparents who, like, you know, like right, thought right, it was right. so cute would, like, have him, like, come over more than they needed. Paid him, you know, tipped him a lot. <laughs> so it's, like, not quite a legit entre- entrepreneurial experience. But, you know, he's getting there for a five-year-old. And anyway, he, he finally saved up enough from this endeavor to buy his Batman Lego set. And so then she took him to the store um, and he's holding like a little bag with his own money in it that he's so proud. He saved up. She let him hand the money to the cashier and he walked out of the store with, with the, you know, his his big Lego set in, in the bag that was like as heavy as he was, you know, that Lego set was like his pride and joy. He appreciated it so much. So Anyway, like all the financial lessons kind of in that whole story of of working hard for money, saving up for something. So she's done fantastic. some great things with Johnny. Yeah.
0: That's fantastic. It's interesting hearing you talk about those three slots because that's the one that the, the three that I hear the most. The mm-hmm. one that I find that gets ignored is the investment slot. Right. Mm-hmm. Which there's no slot that's more important than the other. they just have all different yeah. reasons why they're, right. they're so critical. So what I did with my kids, and this is you know, mm-hmm. part of that elementary starter course, because tried and true in my house, what I did when, and now I feel like a slacker, right? I started with my kids in kindergarten and third grade. I should have been doing it at <laughs> two years old. Hey, that's but, great. <laughs> but what I started doing was they, I said, okay, it's mandatory. You must put some in each of the slots because there were slots. It was a piggy bank at the time. And then they went to buckets and uh, mm-hmm. eventually, and then accounts. But anything that was in that investment slot, I would say, okay, here's your allowance. and But before you divvy that up, I'm now going to pay you interest on what's in your investment slot. Mm-hmm. So we would take it out. If, there were, it. if there's $10 in there, pay them 10%. And yeah. so they wound up getting super excited and yeah. learning about compound interest. You know, they certainly wasn't going to be able to say, this is compound interest and, you know, show them the math. Yeah. So there was, a, you know, doing it for the two of them. And one of them, my younger one was, mm-hmm. you know, the kindergartner, super into just spending and buying all this nonsense. My <laughs> older one, just by her nature, was far more judicious. She was putting a quarter of everything, you know, evenly mm-hmm. distributed. Well, my youngest one, when she ultimately, after about six, seven months, saw how much she was getting, she's like, why is that? She's like, I want some of that. Then she started putting money into the investment nice. bucket. So she was learning from from watching her. Yeah. So I'm curious, what tools, what other tools have you seen people using? You know, why does the investment bucket sort of get, uh, I don't want to say ignored, but why mm-hmm. does it get, why isn't it as represented as the others in conversation and teachings like, yeah. like the rest?
1: Yeah. First of all, I absolutely love what you did. I think that is so great um, to help them, you know, understand at such an early age that they want to be earning interest, not paying interest. That's so um, that's so great. And I actually my uh my mentor I was telling you about uh, Jeff Hill, he did a similar thing. He had like a Hill family bank with his kids and they could either save it and he would pay them interest, or if they ever wanted to borrow money, like if they're like, hey, I want to buy this and they didn't have enough, he's like, Well, you you're welcome to borrow some money from me. He would charge the them interest and Absolutely. they went really fast that <laughs> they did not want to do that. Anyway, Absolutely. so I love that. But I maybe why it gets overlooked is because investing and is an interest or seen as more like high-level financial topics. And so parents think they have to wait until much later to start teaching their kids about that. But but I think more basic, you know, you, yeah, maybe when they're a teenager, you, you know, you actually help them be involved in like their own mutual fund management, you know, help that, you know, them read their statements from Vanguard or whatever. Maybe that's not for a, for an eight year old, but, but I think more basic ways of teaching them the exact same principle are possible, like exactly what you did.
0: Yeah. I mean, my goal was by the time you're done with middle school, sorry, by the time you're done with elementary school, you're going to pick a couple of companies with all this money that's accumulated, you're picking a few companies. And now mm-hmm. on that monthly allowance day, we sit there and we look at the performance report and we just say, okay, well, how did it do since you, since you first bought it, how have you done this year and this month? And Oh, have you heard anything about the company? Like that's it. it it's just mm-hmm. an exercise in comfort, have them feel the ownership of the money have them talk yeah. about it, get into a routine of just looking at things on a monthly basis. They don't have to do anything more than that. Yeah. They don't again, no Warren Buffett here.
1: Yeah, I love that you're like getting them in a habit. So you're like helping them uh, make those financial behaviors, and I'm sure you're that's building their financial self-efficacy, right? Like helping them be confident. Like, Confidence. yeah, I've done this before. Yep. I can do this. Exactly. Like, I'm familiar with this type of thing. So I love that.
0: Ashley, I can't tell you how many people come into my office, you know, as a financial planner, and just really have represent everything that you said. They're not comfortable. They don't know. I just want that, that confidence and yes. Okay. I, I could do this. I've done this before. It feels like routine. That's, that's all I'm striving for.
1: Yeah, I love that. That's so awesome, and and I think we want our we got our megaphones out. We want parents <laughs> to to do a good job of this. But, but you know, for people who just really did not receive good parent financial socialization when they were growing up, like yes, that's probably you know, hurt them a little. Like I'm sorry to them, but um, at the same time, it's like not all hope is lost. Like there's financial planners, there's financial literacy classes you can take, there's financial therapists to help you think through. Why you financial have therapists.
0: It. I haven't heard of that.
1: Ooh. Okay. Financial therapists are awesome. It's kind of like a new, a new field. It's kind of like a combination of marriage and family therapy, more psychology, clinical therapy, and like financial planning. It kind of like combines all hmm. three. Um, Kansas state has been like one of the big institutions, like making this a, um, you can be like a certified financial therapist now and everything. They're trained I, I'm to help not for you. my kids. Yeah. I'm an exactly. I'm an
0: uncertified financial therapist. Yeah,
1: and probably not getting paid for it.
0: <laughs> not very much.
1: It is, like, uh so they combine the like psychology aspect is helping you realize like what scripts or automatic attitudes you've developed about money and just how you think about money and how that's impacting you financially and like if you come in as a couple how maybe like both of you have just learned different things about money and that's actually causing a lot of the a conflict they have about money and then yeah they're trained like marriage and family therapy so they can deal with like the kind of any relationship uh, problems mm-hmm. happening with couples and money um and then financial planning you know outside obviously they they can help people develop more effective like healthy financial attitudes and behaviors so anyway yeah so we're in whatever yeah aspect people people get help like there's so much help out there like Anyway, so again with the empowering, like if if you didn't get it from your parents, you can you can do it and now. You can compensate for that. You can get it. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yep. All right. So Ashley, what's next? You have all of this data, these four thousand people. You're probably going to be talking to thousands more. But what's in store from from you? Like, what what do we look forward to now?
1: I still have a bunch of papers that I have planned, but that I just. You know, it takes a long time to to run the stats and write them all. So I'm working on three right now this semester and between you and me, I have the next six years of research papers <laughs> planned out because I have all these papers I want to write yeah (laughs) i'm like a big i'm a big planner i like organizing anyway but so yeah so lots of studies that like we actually already have the data for i just have to actually run them and write it up so just different research questions that we just want to add a little bit of knowledge to this field or but you know to the couples and money management field and let's see i'm thinking of like the three i'm working on right now maybe uh one that i'll talk about that, that has to do with financial socialization So about the modeling method specifically, you know, there's lots of research showing that modeling matters and that people whose parents were good examples tend to be better at managing their own money later. But there's this idea in social science called the modeling compensation hypothesis, which means that people kind of have two two options. They can either imitate the behavior they've seen modeled by their parents or people who have received poor modeling can intentionally decide
0: to compensate opposite.
1: from that and do right. the opposite. exactly. And no one had um, has really studied this yet um, in financial socialization. So I wanted to you know, kind of exactly what we were just talking about, like is all hope lost for people whose parents weren't good examples? And so in that same data set of, of you know, over 4,000 emerging adults, I had asked them, to categorize themselves into one of four categories. Either my parents were good at managing money when I was growing up, and I am also now good at managing money. And we call we had about half of our sample who categorized themselves as that. We called um, we're calling them intergenerational financial flourishers. And okay. then we had um, another you option an is. Yeah, it's true. We had another option of my parents were bad at managing money when I was growing up but I am now good at managing money. Hmm. And we call those the that was about a fourth of the sample I think and we called them financial phoenixes. They're like Rising, rising from, the, from ashes, the, ashes. the ashes, yeah. And then um, the two other groups were whether their parents, you know, one of them was their parents were good, one of them was their parents were bad, but either way, like they're now bad at managing their money. And so we called right. those people the financial flounders and that's the last quarter of our sample about. Hmm. And so we're looking at those three groups, the like intergenerational flourishers, the phoenixes, the flounders. We're looking at those groups as predictors of those like financial outcomes that we'd already talked about with the other paper. And what we're finding is kind of exactly what I was, like, hoping we would find, which is, like, because I was kind of worried. I was like, ooh, what if we find that actually, like, parents don't matter at all and that, like, you're just as well off even if they were bad. (laughs) Um, But what we ended up finding, I love the the takeaway message from it, is that compared to the flounders, the, the intergenerational financial flourishers and the financial phoenixes, both had higher financial independence, higher financial satisfaction, lower financial distress. But the intergenerational financial flourishers had the highest scores of all. They were like the best off. So it's ideal for parents to be good examples of money management. Like that's kind of best case scenario for right. those kids later. But for but it's still
0: okay if they're not.
1: Yes. It's like not all right. hope is lost. If your parents were right. bad, like you can still decide to compensate for that, you know, get get yourself financial education from, from somewhere else and, and like you can be okay if you intentionally do that.
0: Cool, all right, we're gonna look out for that for sure.
1: So uh, yeah, hopefully that will be submitted in like a month or so and publication's a long process. So maybe in a year or two, we'll see that go out. That.
0: Oh my goodness, that's how long it takes. Yeah, it's wow. kind of a
1: whole, the review process back and forth. Yeah, usually wow. takes
0: a while. All right, Ashley, last question. Yeah. What are the words of wisdom that you would give a parent who has not yet taken the plunge, whether that means allowance, that means just mindfully saying, okay, I am now going to provide an experience for my child. What would you mm-hmm. tell them?
1: I would tell them that hopefully based on our podcast, they now can understand how important it is. And so I would just you know, try to tell them to just do something, like just do a little bit, just get started. I think we are kind of bombarded with parenting advice and like people feel like they have to be the perfect parent in every way for their kids to turn out. And that's not true, but just like exactly what you said, just intentionally doing something and maybe doing something in each category, meaning like each of the three methods, like what can you do to be a better example to your kids about money? Do one thing there differently than you're doing. What's one good conversation that might be important for you to have about money with your kids? Do that sometime this week. What's one thing that you can get your kids to actually practice doing themselves with their own money? Just make one little change that way. And I think those little changes again over years add up a lot and your just intentional efforts will will help them a lot later and not just financially. Again, like this matters for mental health, this matters for relationships. Money affects whole areas of life. So, so just, just do a little something, even though you already have so much on your plate to, to do and to think about, this is worth thinking about. So.
0: I know that you love statistics. So Ashley, I can tell you that five out of five, how to teach your kids about money podcast guests, when asked that question said the same thing, which is just do well, it, just start just, yeah. just dig in. Yes. So that's a small sample size, but, but I, but I love them all. <laughs> yeah, that's great <laughs> <laughs> all right so parents caregivers that's dr ashley lebaron black i can't thank you enough That was really informative i really wanted to nerd out and hopefully everybody feels like we did <laughs> <laughs>
1: thanks alec great to be on here
0: <laughs> so as a reminder to everybody check out our resources the best place to do that is sense of responsibility.com C-E-N-T-S, of course, and you go to sensorresponsibility.com slash resources, whether that's our courses, the blog, podcast, the newsletter sign up, it's all there. And of course, click the little subscribe button, whether it's a thumbs up, a star, whatever it is, and however you're listening or watching, that's always very helpful. And lastly, I always close with teach sensibly, everyone.